Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Joseph Giacomelli. He is Assistant Professor of Environmental History at Duke Kunshan University, and is here today to talk about his book, Uncertain Climbs, Debating Climate Change in Gilded Age America, which comes out today from University of Chicago Press. Dr. Giacomelli, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. What a fascinating book this is. I, you know, I, I had no idea that climate debates were so complex in this era. You know, I had this cartoon version in my head of, of boosters, you know, claiming that rain follows the plow, and then John Wesley Powell standing athwart history, yelling stop. But, uh, but you, you, you showed it's much, much more complicated than that. And I wonder, how, how did you come to suspect there was more to this climate story? And what piqued your interest in, in the discourse around climate in this era? Yeah, so I started from the same exact uh, vantage point as you did. Uh, I, I, like many people who are interested in the 19th century or the U.S. West, I'd heard of this notion of rain follows the plow, and I decided to just uh, dig a little bit deeper because there hadn't been a, a huge amount of secondary scholarship explicitly about it. Uh, and as I started looking more and more into it, um, I realized two things. Firstly, exactly as you said, uh, there, there was a huge um, outpouring of writings about climate in the late 19th century, uh, which was really surprising. People were obsessed with climate in these decades, in the 1870s, 1880s, and these debates were so contentious. Newspapers, agricultural societies, uh, in Congress, discussions of climate change were everywhere. And that was surprising to me because I I didn't realize the extent of this debate. And, you know, initially I set out, you know, to, to say, oh, I'll just read everything written about climate change between 1870 and 1890. And I very quickly realized that was impossible because there had been too much written about this. Um, so the first thing I realized was that it was a much bigger project than I had anticipated. And the second was that, you know, this booster story of rain follows the plow that humans, especially American settlers, could improve the climate through agricultural settlement and forest plantings. That's certainly a very important part of the story. Uh, But I realized that there were many more dimensions to climate change uh, theories uh, during this era. Uh, To some extent, you know, we have this the same dichotomy that you pointed out with, you know, the bad boosters and the good scientists, you know, usually uh, epitomized by John Wesley Powell. Uh, there's a similar dichotomy where you have, you know, these bad boosters uh, who were concerned about climatic improvement and the kind of good conservationists like, uh, you know, George Perkins Marsh, who were concerned about deforestation and, and uh, desiccation and so on. Uh, and as I did more and more research, I realized that these 
you know, these two distinctions uh, were more often both sides of the same coin. A lot of these boosters were also concerned about uh, desiccation and and worsening climates or increasing climatic volatility. And a lot of these uh, scientists or early conservationists uh, in some ways shared some of the boosters, if not their exact beliefs, some of their sensibilities and concerns. Um, So this started to show me that it was a very complicated picture that I needed to uh, to dig uh, more and more into. And, uh, and then I kept encountering different forms of uncertainty in, in the primary sources, you know, whereas, you know, in some instances, it could be people saying that climate change is happening. We don't know why. It's a mysterious, almost divine intercession. Others articulating really specific notions of uncertainties and unknowns, different kinds of uncertainties. Um, and so I really became interested in examining how these scientific uncertainties were connected to these maybe cultural or political or even economic uncertainties about expansion and development. And that's that's how I kind of started from the same point as you and decided that it was a, a much very complicated story that merited uh, further further exploration. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the surprising things about the book is that, you know, it's called Uncertain Climbs. And it's, I think it's equally as much about uncertainty as it is about climate, the book in, in its way. And I think it, it's a, it's an expression of the way you really treat your historical subjects in good faith and try to understand them on their own terms and not just kind of like wall that away and try to get at that, like, you know, the whatever this motivation that might have been more simple. Um, and so I wonder, um, you know, for the participants in this Gilded Age climate discourse, uh, what, do, what would you say they saw was at stake? Because it was as ferocious as it is today in some ways, right? Yeah, there were so many stakes. And to a great extent, people could invoke climate change, you know, the specter or the hope of climate change, depending on whether they were optimistic or pessimistic, to legitimize any number of political interests. Uh, You know, everything from uh, Native Americans and dispossession to uh, railroads to ranching. Uh, to forest planting, to agriculture. Um, And on the large scale, these were debates about capitalism and expansionism. On the more local scale, there were debates about settlement in in arid regions or deforestation and increasing climatic volatility, especially in the East. So, So there were so many different stakes. Often they boil down to capitalism, settlement and expansionism. But so many different topics across the political spectrum and so many different economic interests were involved that if you follow the thread of climate through this period in history, you'll find surprising places where it bubbles to the surface. For example, with Native Americans, um, many proponents of expansionism within the government would invoke climate to to legitimize dispossession and say, well, if we can forcibly confine Native Americans uh, to reservations, this will lead to a climate improvement, increasing rainfall levels, fewer droughts and more temperate climates, because it would prevent Native Americans from setting fires, which supposedly had prevented forest growth and caused uh, aridity. Um, And, you know, that's just one dimension of this, right? There were others who challenged that notion and argued that actually European Americans were the primary cause of um, climatic degradation and that through soil exhaustion and deforestation, it was actually European Americans who were causing much of this purported climatic change. So it really, the stakes were, were almost everywhere. They generally boiled down to questions of capitalism and development, but 
any number of political uh, issues from this era uh, could be and was connected to to climate improvement or to uh, climate degradation in some way. Um, yeah, that was really striking. And and you and you take in your third chapter, you really dive deep into these questions of political economy, and you write that climate theories figured into Americans' attempts to bolster, reform, and attack Gilded Age capitalism. And yeah, although then your analysis shows they do so much, much less neatly than readers might assume. And it wasn't simply a matter of material interests always dictating ideas about whether people could or could not transform the climate. Could you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, material interests did strongly shape this, right? But but just to seize on those on those uh, three words that you mentioned, I think it was um, attack uh, cl- capitalism or bolster reform and attack. Yeah, so, f- so for the first of those, um, in terms of bolstering capitalism, this is perhaps the most well-known dimension of, of climate theory from this era. And, you know, you can easily find a lot of primary sources which invoke railroads uh, or any kind of agricultural development as a source of climatic improvement, railroads bringing settlers uh, and bringing potentially afforestation, forest plantings to arid and semi-arid portions of the Great Plains in the Intermountain West. Um, So in in this way, Gilded Age capitalism served supposedly as a source of climatic improvement by bringing the potential, allowing the almost sublime or divine uh, landscape of America to unleash its full uh, climatic and environmental and also economic uh, potential. And there, you know, even boosters like, you know, Sidney Dillon and others, or sorry, railroad barons, you know, robber barons from, you know, that high up in the social hierarchy. Jay Gould and everything. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. All the way down to local boosters and newspaper men uh, discussing how capitalism and and American development, Anglo-Saxon civilization as well, because there's certainly a strongly racialized dimension of this climate theory as well. Um, and how climate improvement was in some ways the the ultimate manifestation of uh, of the justice and uh, unstoppable force and and course of, of capitalist expansion and development. So in terms of bolstering capitalism, that's perhaps the most famous dimension. Uh, in terms of kind of more reformist authors, uh, there's there's a strain of of this climatic thinking that is very much interested in, in atonement or how bringing climatic improvement to certain regions could serve as a way of atoning for the excesses of American capitalism in certain other portions of the country. And you see this, especially in, in the West, of there's this notion that the East has been uh, rendered as a place of environmental degradation and increasing droughts or unpredictable and volatile climates by soil exhaustion, erosion, and deforestation. And these more reformist authors see the West as, as a blank canvas, a place where they can create an, an ideal climate and atone for the sins of capitalism in the, in the East. And these reformist authors often adopt this moralistic tone, you know, that we need to, that American settlement and expansionism needs to reform its ways, uh, but that it still has the potential to to create a more just and sustainable, you know, they probably wouldn't have used that word, but a more tenable uh, form of expansionism uh, by bringing a more kind of careful and uh, less unhinged form of, of expansion could bring about climatic improvement. 
And these more reformist authors explicitly criticized the early settlers who they saw as more environmentally and climatically careless. And they believed that new ways and new forms of settlement could, um, could bring about a climatic improvement, whereas former forms of capitalist expansion and settlement had been more damaging. And then the last uh, form of the three that you mentioned, the, the climate authors who were very critical and willing to attack capitalism, uh, they were certainly in the minority. And, you know, I don't want to overemphasize their presence, but there were certainly some of these authors as well who viewed uh, climate uh, degradation, worsening climates, increasingly volatile weather patterns and droughts as evidence that American expansionism and capitalism were morally bankrupt and needed to be uh, essentially rethought and reconsidered and and reformulated because climate served as as proof of the the failure and the, the fact that American capitalism in its gilded age, monopolistic, um, you know, financialized form uh, was untenable. So there were some authors uh, like this as well. They were probably not as as common as the more reformist or uh, capitalistic authors, uh, but they were certainly uh, there as well in this very contentious climate debate. One of the cool things about the book is the way you use a category that you call uh, uh, climate theorists. As, as a way to um, encompass both folks we might think of as professionalized or prof- professional scientists um, and lay thinkers of all kinds. And so um, in, in uh, chapter three, you introduce several fascinating characters who complicate the picture that was in my head when I picked up the book, that there was an age of folk knowledge and pseudoscience, and then it gave way to this age of rigorous data collection and professionalized science. Um, would you tell listeners about one or two of these folks? Yeah, of course. Uh, and yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this category of, of climate theorists as well, um, because that's something that I, I really struggled with in, in writing the whole book, uh, right, or in, and in doing the research as well, because this debate was so chaotic. There were so many people involved. There was no clear resolution to the debate. So on the one hand, I was trying to convey this, the cacophonous nature of this debate. But on the other hand, it would be very frustrating to readers if the whole book is like really chaotic and uncertain. So I was trying to do this balancing act. I'm not sure, you know, how much it worked. Uh, But in any case, yeah, I I developed this category of climate theorists uh, because, you know, on on the one hand, there certainly were hierarchies of, of knowledge production in this era as climate science and meteorology became more and more professionalized, specialized, bureaucratized, uh, centralized as well. You know, certain figures, whether they were employed by universities or the state, had more prestige, more power, uh, more access to different forms of data. Uh, and whereas amateurs, polymaths, or just other writers, whether they were random letter writers to newspapers or agricultural society members, they did not have the same level of prestige and power. So there certainly were categories, and I don't want to overlook those different forms of climate authors and those, you know, hierarchies. But on the other hand, this debate and this particular moment in in climate history and the history of science was a moment where some of those people in different places in that knowledge of of climate uh, science hierarchy could struggle with, uh, with perhaps more powerful figures on almost equal terms, uh, because the the picture was so complex, the data collection projects were ongoing, and they were bringing in 
huge amounts of numbers and data. Um, but a lot of these seemingly more lowly or humble figures created maps of their own or challenged and cast doubt upon these more elite figures. So it's a really complex moment. Uh, but uh, to get back to your, to your question about the figures in this chapter, um, you know, perhaps my favorite figure in, in the book is uh, Gustavus Henrichs, who was the founder of the um, Iowa State Weather Service, uh, which ran you know, from the mid-1870s until the early 1890s. And uh, he was, in some ways, a very idiosyncratic figure because he was very pugnacious and uh, he, he was definitely uh, a polymath. You know, he worked in so many different disciplines from physics to chemistry to um, climatology to, to many others, even uh, language studies. Um, and so he was idiosyncratic uh, in a way because of his personality and his interests. Uh, but he was also in some ways very representative of these broader trends that, that you mentioned of, you know, the professionalization of science, uh, increasing specialization as well, because he participated in these data collection projects where he had a large network of observers throughout the state of Iowa, and he would collect rainfall data and temperature data from them. Um, you know, several hundred observers, they would send him uh, their reports, and he would try to compile it into different maps and charts and articles and books, uh, which uh, he sought to accomplish many different things in, in meteorological terms. In climatological terms, he was also trying to weigh in on this question of could humans transform the climate through agriculture, forest planting, or deforestation. Um, and Henrik's uh, kind of, he tended to be more on the side of arguing in favor of human-induced climatic changes. But on, on the other hand, he also believed that this question could never be definitively resolved, which is convenient because that would you know, legitimize his ongoing data collection projects, uh, you know, seemingly in perpetuity. Uh, but he also developed some, some really uh, subtle and interesting approaches to probability uh, and probabilistic uh, forecasting and, and climate knowledge. So, uh, so Henrik's, I think, in some ways, he represented these trends towards professionalization and centralization because he participated in these data collection projects. But on the other hand, he realized that these initiatives to, to answer climatological questions sometimes struggled to, to produce definitive answers. Uh, and for him, that was an opportunity because it created uh, further opportunities for study and, and even more uh, research as well. You mentioned the data collection and the cartography that's at the center of many of these figures' work. And, you know, few tools are as closely associated with modernity as the map, right? And we often analyze, as historians with students, we analyze lines set down in a map as evidence of, of confidence, right? Or maybe often overconfidence, right? And confidence in science, confidence in the inevitability of, of conquest, right? That this, is, this will become, you know, this, this empire's land or whatever else. But, um, but when you turn it, your attention to climate maps, you find cartography producing uncertainty. How did it do that? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and Henrix himself was one of these cartographers. Um, so various people across this, this climate debate tried to prove their theories about climate change or lack thereof by making maps. But they faced a lot of challenges. Uh, firstly, the data sets were often incomplete or they were spotty or perhaps they were just uh, you know, short term because they were fairly novel data collection initiatives. So they were working with a fairly short time span. Uh, also, it's quite difficult to map change over time. 
Uh, and if you're trying to show a map that depicts climate change or climate stability, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to show something that is fixed and unchanging with a map. You know, they, they couldn't create, uh, you know, animated maps in the way that we can now. They could create map series, but not animated maps that show change in the same way we can nowadays. So they faced a lot of different challenges. Um, and, and in many ways, it was a struggle. It was a cartographic struggle uh, over the mental maps of Americans, right? Trying to prove that these areas that had been imagined as, as deserts or as unsuitable to agriculture or tree growth uh, were actually dynamic landscapes that were changing, that these uh, climates that were arid were potentially uh, changeable or changing. Um, and to do so, Henriks and some others uh, tried some different cartographic techniques, trying to show you know the most straightforward, just different map series, trying to show a change over time with different isolines kind of migrating westward to show the westward uh, movement of the rain belt, the area of increasing rainfall levels. Uh, Henriks also tried to make maps of uh, forest cover to correlate them with maps of, uh, of rainfall levels, rainfall averages, to try to prove not just that the change was happening, but that there was a specific causal explanation. You know, the extent of forests was correlated with rainfall levels. So he tried to prove that. Uh, so they were trying to prove their arguments and, and reflect reality, which, as you said, is what maps often claim to do. Um, even the, the opponents of climate change who were trying to show that the climate wasn't changing, they were making similar kind of maps to show climatic continuity. But oftentimes, uh, people all over the spectrum of this debate uh, ran into difficulties because people who tried to make maps that showed climatic stability often found that others were appropriating their maps and interpreting them in ways that showed climate change. Um, and in some instances, also, those who intentionally produced climatic uncertainty uh, ran into some difficulties because their maps were also appropriated and used in different ways. So I think the in the case of cartography, uncertainty worked in different ways. In, in some instances, there was an uh, unintentional uncertainty where the meaning of a map is open to interpretation and could be appropriated. And in another way, some of these cartographers tried to convey uncertainty and destabilize an existing kind of climatic or scientific consensus by showing that, oh, these lines on the map are actually fluid, they're changing, or they would use dashed or dotted lines uh, to, to denote uncertainty and lack of data to cast doubt upon their opponents' perceptions or theories about the environment or the climate. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's it's really fun to look at these maps because, um, you know, the, the book doesn't show them in color, but if you can see some of them in color, uh, they're, they're also quite beautiful, I think. In between chapters four and five, you take a few pages um, for what you call an interlude. And in that interlude, you tell a story about a rainmaker who is roundly criticized by scientists and by the press. And then, quite surprisingly, he's defended to an extent by the by the chief of the U.S. Weather Bureau. Can you give us a quick summary of this little of this little story and tell us what you find so revealing about it? Yeah. So this is something that I really struggled with whether <laughs> really? to even include in the book. Uh, I'm glad because, you did. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it. But uh, but yeah, because rainmaking rainmakers are you know the people who this is kind of a more short term you know bombarding the clouds or you know doing something to affect short change um, 
in, in the weather, right? That's different from the kind of more long-term climatic changes that I was mostly looking at. And also these rainmakers were so often clearly charlatans or hucksters. And part of the book's project is to show that climate theory was not solely the realm of these hucksters and charlatans. So I really struggled with whether to include these these rainmakers. Uh, but ultimately I did because I'm, I'm not so much interested in the rainmakers themselves um, so much as I am in the legacy of the rainmakers and how mm-hmm. other climate theorists from this era interpreted the implications of their work uh, for climate theory. So I look at this one example uh, with Robert Dyronforth in 1891, uh, you know, bombarding the clouds in West Texas, and, and other historians have written uh, more thorough and more comprehensive accounts of Dyronforth's work. Julie Courtright, uh, uh, Jim Fleming, and others uh, have given you know, much more thorough treatments of this particular incident and rainmaking in general. What I was interested in was what happened after this debate uh, or after the actual experiment where many people pilloried uh, Dyron Forth and said, you know, the experiment was a joke. He claimed to have caused rainfall by bombarding the clouds with kites and explosives uh, and, and various people through different arguments and different forms of evidence sought to disprove Dyron Forth's claims. Some did so uh, quite convincingly. But what was fascinating to me was that some people within uh, the, the more formal bureaucracy and more formal realm of, of climate science actually saw Dyron Forth's experiments as potentially interesting and potentially useful um, because they thought that, well, you know, probably he did not produce that much rain. They acknowledged people like, uh, like Mark Harrington, who, who you mentioned, uh, but they acknowledged that there was something here that there was to some extent a possibility that it may have caused some slight localized changes. So I think what this shows is that there's this this tension between experimentation and theory, that the experiments are trying to prove the theory, uh, but oftentimes uh, the experiments create more uncertainty, which creates new forms of theorizing, which then creates even more experiments. And at least in this particular context, the experiments and theories created a proliferation of, of different uncertainties and unknowns and controversies rather than settling uh, any of these meteorological or, or climatic questions as well. In chapter five, you explore how forestry advocates thought about climate. Um, and, and you see in their writing what you term an ecological sensibility. Um, but it's also one rooted in the conception of, in your words, an uncertain ecology. How did uncertainty figure in the work of these folks? Yeah, so these were uh, forestry advocates. So a group of, of proponents of forest planting and forest conservation. They wanted to conserve existing forests and also plant trees in areas that formerly had trees or perhaps in their visions had at some point in the ancient past been uh, forested. So these, these forestry proponents, they were not yet, or most of them were not yet part of the more scientific progressive era forestry movement that, that came later. They were in some ways precursors to that, but they were all, or, or many of them were interested in climate and they tended to agree that humans could influence climate through deforestation or forest planting. And many of these forestry proponents, people like John Warder, 
uh, Julius Sterling Morton, uh, as well, who was the founder of, of Arbor Day. They viewed trees, humans, climate, other species, biotic and abiotic aspects of the environment as fundamentally interconnected, that one aspect of this system could influence other aspects in this network of, of mutually influencing factors. So I call it ecology in some ways. I mean, of course, ecology as a science didn't really coalesce in, until significantly later. You know, uh, Laura Martin's uh, book is discusses this in, in the slightly later context. So these were, you know, more proto-ecologists. I, I wouldn't call them ecologists in the, in the contemporary sense, certainly. Uh, but I think it is very interesting to see how they viewed climate, humans, trees, and other uh, species or other objects as fundamentally interconnected. And they viewed climate as an indicator of the balance or, or lack of equilibrium of this system. So many of these forestry proponents interpreted violent storms, tornadoes, droughts, and these kinds of short or long-term events as indications of the health or lack of health of this interconnected ecology. And they viewed it also as uncertain because they acknowledged that they did not and perhaps could not understand the workings of this complex ecological system. They didn't quite understand how each factor in this network was shaping the others. But despite that, they still firmly believed that this was a world of interconnection and that they and their supporters and society as a, as a whole should be very careful in treating a specific aspect of this network, such as trees, because cutting down trees might destabilize the equilibrium of the whole system, even if they did not know exactly how that system worked. Um, so it was, you know, very interesting that they believed in the existence of this kind of ecology, but they they acknowledged that they could not and did not understand all its inner workings. Yeah, I love that. Um, late in the book here, you 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 return to these kind of rainfalls, the plow folks, and we know that they they kind of hit hard times in the late 19th century. You know, their their prophecies were not coming true, and there was economic, you know, panic one after another that 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 lost them support. Um, but you show that belief in anthropogenic climate change persisted longer than historians generally assume, longer than I assumed, um, into the progressive era. And, and we, you know, we tend to think of progressives as, as rather sure of themselves. Um, but you argue that they too, um, in your words, embraced uncertainty. Where can we see that? Yeah. So, um, you know, to your first point about the persistence of these of these climate theories, um, it's certainly true that by the 1890s, they were losing some of their steam, at least many of this, especially the more booster style climate theories. You know, there were droughts, uh, you know, the panic of 1893 really dented a lot of this confidence. But these climate change theories persisted in slightly different ways into the 1890s and 1910. They were, you know, a bit less confident. There was a little bit less hubris, uh, but they were still there and they kept bubbling to the surface for several decades. And, and I think these the vestiges of these theories continued into the New Deal era, influencing things like the Shelter Belt uh, program during, during the New Deal. Um, but as to how these climate change theories persisted and also changed into the, you know, the later progressive era, you know, during, during this era, there was a lot more uh, concern with hydrology as well. And uh, some of these former climate boosters gravitated towards um, irrigation or uh, windmills or 
um, in some ways also pond theory and reservoir construction as more, more certain forms of environmental improvement and, and other ways of securing uh, agriculture and settlement in, in marginal areas. So these new technologies or practices afforded, seem to afford a greater level of certainty. But on the other hand, these same theorists and these new emergent uh, scientists, foresters, and surveyors were unwilling to give up uh, you know, these older traditions. They, they modified them to fit the more perhaps technocratic or certain ethos of their era. But even many of these hydrologists or other progressive era figures, whether they worked uh, for the Forest Service, um, you know, the, the Corps of Engineers or, or other, uh, other bureaucracies, they often still acknowledge that this question of human influences on climate was unsettled and uncertain. Uh, and they viewed it as part of a broad list or a broad kind of complex of different theories or different beliefs and practices that necessitated intervention in uh, conservation or in environmental management. So even these figures who uh, sought to portray themselves as certain scientists who could wield a very reliable body of knowledge, they at the same time often invoked uh, these older climate change theories while acknowledging that they were uncertain, but they still cited them as an example of why their own careers, their own work was legitimate. Uh, and they became, I think, very skilled at invoking these, these climate theories to justify you know, more interventionist types of forest management, for example, uh, or, or hydrology as well. Now, this is, this is not a presentist book. You're not cherry-picking usable pieces of the past to speak to the present in this way. Um, and and I mean, you, really, you really do honor the what you called, in your words, chaos of, of this discourse. Um, and I, actually, I can hardly think of another book that so carefully so carefully constructed about such a messy topic. Um, but, uh, but, but you do close by, by trying to think about what, what it might say to the present, um, the, these, these folks. And so, you know, for as long as I can remember in my lifetime, when it comes to climate politics, uncertainty has been a weapon wielded by denialists, right? And you invite us to consider how it might improve our contemporary climate discourse today. So what do you think these theorists offer us? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great point, right? So often we hear about, you know, merchants of doubt and, uh, and uncertainty as something that is uh, used by these more nefarious actors in the climate debate. And that's certainly true. But I, but I also think that uncertainties, unknowns, uh, they're so important. They're, they're unavoidable. Uh, they're so important and so powerful that I don't think we should cede them to these, you know, more nefarious uh, figures. We should incorporate them into different types of, of climate politics, I think. Uh, but as to the differences and um, the change in continuity between Gilded Age and present, uh, there are so many resonances, right, in terms of that debate was largely about capitalism as well. Obviously, so much contemporary climate politics is still about capitalism and the future of capitalism as well. So there are many resonances. We should also keep in mind the differences as well. You know, they were talking primarily about landscape change. Nowadays, we're talking about uh, emissions. Uh, climate science is... Uh, obviously much more reliable than it was, uh, you know, over a hundred years ago. So, so we need to keep these differences in mind, but I think a lot of these, these authors, these climate theorists, um, they were very skilled at conveying different types of uncertainties, whether they were temporary uncertainties or deeper unknowns uh, or, 
even perhaps unknowables, they communicated these uncertainties to their publics, their different audiences, in really subtle and careful ways. And I think that empowered a lot of these authors, whether they were professional scientists or just kind of a random uh, newspaper author, they actually used these uncertainties uh, to give themselves more power and more legitimacy to their particular environmental and scientific visions. Um, you know, so I think this suggests that when communicating with different audiences and in climate politics nowadays, that it's very, very important to be to be careful and to communicate different types of uncertainty and unknowns rather than, you know, constructing a, a, a more uncertain or more seemingly objective or certain uh, facade. Uh, I think it's it's often important to to try to communicate those uncertainties even to broad audiences, uh, rather than trying to simplify simplify climate knowledge, uh, environmental knowledge as well. Thanks. Yeah, and and you know, I hope you are uh, you're kept just as busy as you want to be sharing this book with readers in the weeks and months ahead. Um, when your schedule clears a bit here, are there other projects that you're ready to share with with listeners that you're working on? Uh, yeah. So uh, living and working and. In mainland China, you know, I'm I'm an Americanist, but I'm hoping to develop some, and I have been developing some collaborations with some students and colleagues who who work uh, on Chinese history or who are working on kind of contemporary uh, environmental issues in China. Uh, so we've been looking at some uh, weather modifications, so a little bit more recent, more 20th century rather than late 19th, and weather modification rather than kind of more long-term questions of climatic change. But I'm, I'm more and more interested in comparing 20th century weather modification initiatives in the U.S. to similar initiatives uh, in China in the mid to late uh, 20th century and, and perhaps early 21st century as well. Uh, so this project is it's, you know, very much in the early stages, uh, but that, that's something that I'm very much looking forward to now that this 19th century project is, is finally uh, done. Oh, that's fascinating. We'll keep tabs on that in the, in the years ahead. Well, this book again is Uncertain Climes, Debating Climate Change in Gilded Age America. Comes out today from University of Chicago Press. Its author is, and my guest has been, Joseph Giacomelli. Joe, thank you so much for your time and for this book. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. It's been uh, great chatting with you today. I, I really appreciate it.